to Mercy House University's podcast. This is part two of our class on how can we trust the Gospels, and this is episode seven. And we're going to be hearing from Justin today, and he's going to cover the rest of the book of Acts that we have not covered so far. Great. Okay. Uh, Yeah, so if you've been following along with the podcast, a couple of episodes ago, Patrick took us through roughly the first third of the book of Acts, considering some of the historical evidence relevant to what happened between the Ascension and Paul's conversion. And then in our most recent episode, Austin took us through roughly the second third of the book of Acts, considering some of the historical evidence relevant to Paul's missionary journeys. So my job today is to take us through roughly the final third of the book of Acts and considering some of the historical evidence relevant to the events recorded there. Now, as usual, and as has been the case throughout this entire class, there's more evidence uh, than we have time to cover. So we've been forced to be selective. And so today what I've decided to do is focus basically on two things from the last third of the book of Acts. And that is Paul's trials before Felix and Festus following his arrest, and then his voyage to Rome. Uh, Okay, so let's uh, begin with the trials. Let me just kind of set the stage here. So once Paul returns from his third missionary journey, He is arrested because he's made a lot of enemies among the Jews who are not happy with the doctrines that he's been uh, teaching all around the Roman Empire. And so they get him arrested. And uh, he ends up standing trial before the Sanhedrin. And then he's eventually shipped off to Caesarea where he's going to stand trial before uh, the Roman official Felix. And that's where we are going to pick up the story. Uh, For this first part where I'm talking about Paul's trials, um, I'm, as usual, drawing on a variety of sources, but let me just highlight two of the sources that I'll be relying on the most. Um, And they are this uh, wonderful book by Colin Hemer called The Book of Acts in the Setting of Hellenistic History. And then also another good book by A.N. Sherwin-White called Roman Society and Roman Law in the New Testament. They're both kind of academic books. They're not as accessible, but fortunately, we have a podcast where we're taking that stuff and making it maybe a little more accessible. Okay, so the trial before Felix is in Acts chapter 24. I'm just going to start reading from verse 1, and we're going to work through this and consider some of the uh, evidence for some of these details. So starting at verse 1, we read, Five days later, The high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. Okay, so right off the bat, there are a few things to comment on here. First, that five days later thing, what's that about? Well, Paul is being held in custody at Caesarea, and he's there for a few days before they hold his trial because they wait and hold the trial when his accusers are there. And this is important because that, is, um, that was standard procedure for the Romans. So this is a, a way in which the trial, as it's described, reflects how Roman trials were actually carried out. Moreover, um, the accusers are private parties who are making charges against Paul, and they use a lawyer named Tertullus, and this also 
fits with what we know of standard Roman procedure. So all of this so far is accurate in terms of how it's presenting uh, a Roman trial. Oh, I should mention that the use of a lawyer was optional. And we actually see this reflected in the text as well, because later when Paul stands trial before Festus, his accusers don't seem to use a lawyer. So they're using a lawyer sometimes, not other times, and that fits with what we, again, with what we know of how Roman legal procedure worked. Okay, carrying on then from verse 2, when Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Okay, so um, just a, a tiny little thing to note here. Tertullus uses this phrase, most excellent Felix, and the term that this is actually translating in Greek is the appropriate term of address for someone holding uh, Felix's office. So that's just kind of a, a small little detail, but again, it's something that the author of Acts which we're presuming was Luke, gets right. Okay, verse 5 and following. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Notice what Tertullus is doing here. He's giving the accusations against Paul a really political spin. So if you actually go back earlier in Acts and read about the the point at which Paul is arrested, the issue that the Jews were taking with him was a religious one. They're upset with the doctrines that Paul has been teaching. But that isn't going to be of interest to a Roman official. And in fact, we see this very phenomenon earlier in Acts uh, in chapter 18, I think it is, when Paul is in Corinth and he's brought before Gallio, who is a Roman official. And Gallio dismisses the accusations against him on the grounds that they're religious matters that he as a Roman official isn't concerned with. And so it looks like what Tertullus is doing here is he's taking what was originally and what fundamentally for the Jews is this religious dispute and trying to give it a political twist. He's casting Paul as a troublemaker, a rabble rouser of some sort, so that it will be of interest to Felix and less likely that Felix will dismiss the charges against Paul. So this is a really plausible detail. I feel like it's interesting to note that that this actually kind of mirrors the move that the that Jesus' accusers make against him. It's clear from the gospel accounts that what really angers them is his claim to be the son of God and thereby to make himself equal with God. So it's a theological point that angers them. But then the accusation they bring before the Roman official is he's claiming to be a king and thereby to be a usurper of Roman law. Nice. Yeah, good point. Uh, So yeah, once again, it's like, yeah, that's related to what made you angry, but they're, yeah, they're they're changing the accusation in a way that's going to hopefully make their case go through to the Romans. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Verse 10 and following. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. 
You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Okay, and then he goes on from there and gives his defense. A um, couple of things here. First, it, this still, we're seeing um, standard procedures being followed. After the accusers make their accusations, the accused has an opportunity to defend himself. And then moreover, this is actually the second time in just this short passage that a reference has been made to the fact that Felix has been ruling for a while. So Paul says here, I know that for a number of years you have been judge over this nation. And Tertullus earlier said that we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you. And it turns out this is a fact that we um, are able to independently confirm. We know that Felix was a historical person. Um, this isn't just some somebody that Luke made up. And it, as it turns out, it's also the case that Felix had an unusually long uh, rule for someone in his position. So Colin Hemer uh, points out um, that Felix had, quote, held office for eight or nine years altogether, a lengthy span for an imperial official, and sharply contrasted with the annual tenure of, of the senatorial proconsul. That's Hemer. Okay, so that's a neat little detail. And then if you jump down to verse 17, Paul is still speaking in his own defense, and he says that after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Okay, so Paul's doing something really clever there. Roman, the Roman legal system was set up in such a way as to discourage people from defaulting on the charges that they made against others. And so Paul is making his accusers look bad by pointing out the fact that the original accusers aren't here. The people who are actually here accusing him are not the people who were originally upset with him and got him arrested. Mm. And he's drawing attention to this fact. So that's clever. And then he does something else that's clever. Uh, reading on from there, he says, Or those who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. It looks like what Paul is doing here is exactly the opposite of what Tertullus is doing. Uh, he's emphasizing the religious nature of the issue that the Jews take with him. He's saying, look, I haven't done anything unless it's this religious claim that I made when I was standing before the Sanhedrin. So all of this is just really plausible, given what we know of the Roman legal system. It fits the way the system worked, and these are the kinds of things that you might expect someone who's defending themselves in this situation to say. Uh, carrying on then from verse 22, Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Jesus Christ. Here again, we have another character who we know existed as a historical person. Um, uh, that's Felix's wife, Drusilla. Um, Housen says that J.S. Housen in his little book on the book of Acts says that the merits of Felix and Drusilla, quote, is one of the well-known facts of contemporaneous history. Hmm. Okay, then jumping down to verse 27, 
That verse reads, When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Again, this is a fact for which we have independent historical confirmation. Josephus, in in his Antiquities, confirms that Festus succeeded Felix. And we even know when this happened, according to my sources. This transition took place in about 59 to 60 CE. Okay, um, jump down now to chapter 25, verse 6. And at this point, we're going to be moving into uh, Paul's second trial. Well, actually third, if you count the trial before the Sanhedrin. His trial before Festus. So starting at verse 6, we read that after spending eight or ten days with them, he, this, this is Festus, went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defense. Okay, so again, we see the proper procedure is, is being followed here. We have... Um, the uh, trial being held in the right place. So it it mentions they convened the court. So that's referring to the tribunal, which is where these trials were supposed to uh, take place. That same reference is in verse 10, where Paul says, I am now standing before Caesar's court. So referring to their standing before the tribunal. But also we have the same, you know, the same procedures being followed. The the, um, trial is being held when the accusers are there. The accusers raise charges against Paul, and Paul is given a chance to defend himself. The accusers are, again, private parties. Um, So all of this fits with how we know that trials uh, were run. Okay, and then ultimately, down uh, down at verse 11, Paul appeals to Caesar. I'm going to start reading at verse 10. Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Okay, a couple of things here. Um... So we know that Roman citizens did have the right to appeal to Caesar at any point in a trial, during a trial. So that's something that we can confirm. And we know from earlier in the book of Acts that Paul um, was, in fact, a Roman citizen. Moreover, um, we see here Festus conferring with his counsel in, in verse 12. And that also fits with what we know of these trials. It wasn't just one Roman official up there. Uh, that official would have had Um, a little sort of council of advisors that he might confer with. And so we see that happening here in verse 12. Okay. And then in verse 13, we're told that a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. Okay. Um, Once again, these are people that we know actually existed. This Agrippa is Herod Agrippa II, son of Herod Agrippa I, who is the Herod that appears in Acts chapter 12. And those, those are both different from the Herods in the Gospels, where we have Herod Antipas and Herod the Great. 
but anyway, uh, and then Bernice was Herod Agrippa's sister. And um, so we know that these people existed. We know about when they existed. Hemer writes that, quote, enough is known of the course of the lives of brother and sister, that is Agrippa and Bernice, to illustrate the general chronological suitability of the reference, though the notes of time are not otherwise sufficiently precise to set close and exclusive criteria. So um, chronologically, their appearance at this point in the narrative makes sense, is what he's saying. Okay. And what happens after this is that Paul ends up speaking uh, again in front of Festus and also, this time, Agrippa and Bernice. And that takes up the rest of chapter 25 and all of chapter 26. There's just one detail that I want to draw your attention to in all that big long speech. And it has to do with Paul's uh, account of his own uh, Damascus Road experience. So in the course of speaking to these Roman officials, Paul tells the story of his experience on the road to Damascus. And that story begins in chapter 26, verse 12. He says, On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, uh, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And the story goes on from there. Here's the detail I want to draw your attention to. Paul specifically mentions that the voice spoke to him in Aramaic. So this suggests that Paul is not here speaking in Aramaic when he's talking to these Roman officials. And that makes sense because this is not a context where they would have been speaking Aramaic. This is a context in which they would have been speaking Greek, right? They're in a Roman, uh, at a Roman tribunal. They're not, you know, in like Jewish Palestine or anything like that. So that's a neat detail. But there's something else really cool about this, and it has to do with the fact that this is not the first time in the book of Acts that Paul has recounted the story of his experience on the road to Damascus. He also does that earlier in Acts chapter 22, when he's speaking to the mob of Jews who got who get him arrested. So have a look at Acts chapter 22, starting at verse 6. There, Paul says, about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Okay, notice on this occasion, he doesn't say that the voice was speaking in Aramaic. Now, that could just be a meaningless variation. There are other little variations between the way Paul tells the story on this one occasion and the way he tells it on the other occasion, and you would expect that. He's not going to say it exactly the same way each time. But in this case, I think it's actually clear what the explanation is for this variation, and it turns out to be really cool. You can see it by backing up to Acts chapter 21, verse 40 uh, and following. So at, at Acts chapter 21, verse 40 and following, we, we read this. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. 
And then he goes on speaking from there and eventually gets to verse 6 and following where he tells his story. So the reason he doesn't say here, oh, this voice spoke to me and it said in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is because he's already speaking in Aramaic and so he doesn't have to translate it. And so there's no reason for him to clarify, oh, but actually the voice was speaking in a different language than the one that I'm speaking in to you now. But when he's in front of... um, these Roman officials later in chapter 26, and he's speaking Greek, then it becomes uh, reasonable to clarify, oh, actually this voice was speaking to me in Aramaic, so what I'm telling you is a translation of what the voice said to me. Okay, so that's a kind of neat, I don't know exactly what to call it, maybe it's a kind of undesigned coincidence. And this, by the way, was pointed out by J.S. Housen in his book uh, about Acts. Um, though I first learned it from Tim McGrew. Uh, so that's a, some of the ways in which um, information that we have confirms details in the account of Paul's uh, trials before Felix and Festus. That's not quite everything, but that's a lot of the details that um, I'm aware of, which help to confirm the historicity of that part of the narrative. Well, that's one that's interesting, <clears throat> only in that, because you have people working in different languages and different contexts, the fact that Luke draws attention to those things throughout the book of Acts. Um, and it does seem that if you've got all of these people who are multilingual or switching between languages pretty regularly, it'd be a pretty easy thing to either ignore entirely or to get wrong or, you know, it just, it's just, yeah. it's, it's a consistently ongoing reality that these people are operating in different languages. So right. the fact that he draws attention to each of those shifts, mm-hmm. um, in sort of a subtle, factual way, like, oh, and, and this part happened to be in this language. Um, mm-hmm. it, it just seems like a really cool explanatory. Yeah, I th- and I think, I don't remember exactly who says what, but I think that um, Housen and McGrew, like the, the points that they're trying to make here are, first of all, um, the fact that there's a difference like that suggests that the speeches Paul is making were really made in the context in which Luke is presenting them rather than made up later by Luke because they're sensitive to the immediate context that Paul is in and not just the context that the author of Acts was in when he wrote Acts. But then also, um, it seems like, and I guess I don't remember if McGrew and Housen are explicit about this point, but they might be. Um, It's just so subtle, right? It's one of those things where if you're just making stuff up, you might forget about that or miss that point. Right, like that's that would be an easy mistake to make. So, um, my Bible says or Hebrew. There's like a footnote. Yeah. Is there any like? It's so it's the same thing. So it's Aramaic is like a version of Hebrew. Okay. Is that right? Austin? It's a dialect, a basically. Dialect. So yeah, so the Greek just says says in Hebrew or, or with Hebrew. Right. Yeah. Um, like so, some will translate it as in the Hebrew language instead of in yeah. Aramaic. But the com at that point. Really, people were only reading classical Hebrew. Like that's what the scriptures were written in. Uh, for the like the, the Jewish scriptures, they had they had an Aramaic translation. A lot of people would have been reading called the Targum, but most common people would have just been speaking Aramaic as the local dialect. So they would a lot of them would have been reading classical Hebrew and speaking Aramaic. You're saying? Yeah, it's sort of like you know Latin throughout the Middle Ages, right? Like yeah. people people could read and write it. Some people could probably speak it, but most people were speaking their local, local dialect, dialect, which at that point, you know, Italian would not have been that different from Latin, right? Um, it would have been more like a, a dialect in some ways. All right. And with that, 
we now get to turn to what I think is my favorite chapter. So chapter 27 of the book of Acts gives us a record of Paul's voyage to Rome. And I really love this chapter, and I'll tell you why. I think that this chapter is probably the most dramatic example in all of Scripture of geographical accuracy and of how geographical accuracy can support the historicity of the events recorded in a narrative. Uh, So for this um, discussion of chapter 27, uh, again, I'd be drawing on various sources. Here are the two main ones. Uh, Once again, Colin Hemer's book, uh, but he's actually drawing for a lot of his stuff on uh, about this particular chapter. I mean, for, on the other source that I'm going to be relying on, which is this really, really cool book um, called The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul by James Smith. This book was published in 1848, and James Smith was a yachtsman who actually, he explains this in the introduction to his book, he actually went and spent a winter on Malta and visited the various places that come up in this uh, voyage um, that Paul took according to the book of Acts. And he did all this research and he talked to people who lived in the area and he basically, you know, so he collected all this information and he wrote this book uh, defending the historicity of this voyage in Acts. And it's a really great book. This one is not, um, I mean, it's, it is kind of an academic book, but I think it's more accessible than some of the others that we've um, mentioned. And I do highly recommend it. It's just a wonderful book. Okay, so um, let's get into chapter 27 then. I'll start with a general comment that Colin Hemer makes. Um, he points out that looking through this chapter, it is just packed full of these little details about like geography and weather and like the nautical maneuvers that the sailors are making that make the passage read more like just a record of what happened and not at all like a piece of theological propaganda. And so that's, I think, a valuable point to keep in mind as we work through the details of this text. Um, So let's start at the top, shall we? Chapter 27, starting at verse 1. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Okay, I want to stop and take note of that detail. I'm not going to note every detail that is in some way confirmed by historical evidence, but I am going to note a lot of them. And this is the first one I want to really focus on. So this detail about them, they passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us, says Luke. Okay, so this is interesting. Um, in part because that's not what they did last time Paul sailed past Cyprus. If you look at Acts chapter 21, verse 3, um, we find out that at that time they sailed south of Cyprus. This time they're actually going north of Cyprus. And that's also a little bit weird because if you look at a map of the Mediterranean, it's really easy by just by Googling or maybe even looking in the back of your Bible to find a map of Paul's voyage 
Um, it, they're kind of going what looks like out of the way. Given that they're headed towards this port called Myra, which we'll find out about in a minute, and they're coming from the east end of the Mediterranean Sea, the straightest path would just take them south of Cyprus. But instead, they go up north and around the north side of Cyprus, and it makes their route more circuitous. So what's going on there? Well, uh, you know, Luke says it's because the winds were against us. And as it turns out, so Smith in this book that I was talking about, he confirms that given that they're sailing at this time of year, so this would have been in late summer, there is a wind at that time of year, it's typical at that time of year, that makes uh, going north around Cyprus the better sailing route uh, to take. And he goes on to explain as follows. He says, quote, In pursuing this route, they acted precisely as the most accomplished seamen in the present day would have done under similar circumstances. By standing to the north till they reached the coast of Cilicia, they might expect when they did so to be favored by the land breeze which prevails there during the summer months, as well as by the current which constantly runs to the westward along the south coast of Asia Minor, end quote. Okay, so basically, according to Smith, this makes perfect sense, given the time of year that they're sailing and the local conditions at that particular place at that time of year. All right, carrying on from there, uh, from verse 5. When we had sailed across the open sea, off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. Okay, so they land at Myra and they get on board another ship there. They switch from this ship that they took from Adramidium, and they get onto this Alexandrian corn ship that's headed for Rome. Okay, so uh, Smith makes the point that um, this detail about the corn ship arriving there actually fits with what Luke told us earlier about the wind that forced them to go north of Cyprus. Because given the direction of that wind, uh, according to Smith, that would also have kind of uh, forced or at least encouraged the Alexandrian ship towards the port at Myra. So that's kind of a neat little deep connection between passing details there. Um, moreover, uh, it makes sense that they land at Myra because given where they're coming from and their aim to hop on a ship that's headed to Rome, apparently uh, Myra would have been the first port that they would reach where they could find an Alexandrian cord ship heading to Rome. And that's just given what we know of the shipping routes at the time. So all of that makes sense. Moreover, we know that Myra is a real place. Um, now, keeping in mind that Smith was doing his research and writing, you know, back in the 1800s, nevertheless, he reports that when he was there, you could still see remains of, of the city of Myra um, uh, at the appropriate location. Uh, verse 7 and following. We made slow headway for many days, and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete, opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Lycia. Smith argues, he takes various clues that are here in the text and argues that the reason that they would have had slow progress here um, was because of winds coming from the northwest. And then he adds, quote, this is precisely the wind which might have been expected in those seas towards the end of the summer. So again, 
Um, the details in the text make sense given knowledge of like local conditions at the appropriate time of year. Moreover, he actually goes on to explain like all these details in verses seven and eight about their trip from uh, from Myra to Lacia. He he has a really neat commentary on these on these verses where he explains in detail the winds and the currents that would be involved and how this makes sense of precisely the moves they make in these verses um, and how they would you know pass by this piece of land and then go to the south of this one and so on. And I'm not going to try to recount all that here. Um, I'm just going to make this general comment, and you're welcome to go look at his book if you want the details. Okay, and then um, Hemer adds this point. He says that, so the mention at the end of Fair Havens near the town of Lacia, where they, that's where they end up uh, are stopping after they've departed from Myra, um, Hemer makes the point that these are pretty obscure locations, mm-hmm. and he thinks that it's not likely that anyone who hasn't actually traveled through that area would have known about them. Uh, but nevertheless, there they are. Um, so that, I think, is a cool point. And then we t- were told this. So um, if you jump down to verse 12, since the harbor was unsuitable to winter, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. Okay, so basically everything in this passage is exactly right. So, uh, first of all, it's true that Fair Havens is not a particularly good winter shelter. It's true that Phoenix, at the time at least, would have been a better uh, shelter. It's telling also, me that they're not very fair havens? They're not very, yeah, the haven is not very fair. Um, not much of a haven, really. <laughs> uh, it's also the case that Phoenix was basically their best chance of getting to a better shelter because it was um, 40 miles away along the south coast of Crete. So all they had to do at that point was make this last 40-mile run to Just get right from along the coast. right along the coast to get from Fair Havens to Phoenix. Um, so this makes sense that they might be tempted to do that. Moreover, um, this whole this thing about Phoenix being a harbor in Crete facing southwest and northwest, what's that about? Well, um, Phoenix was positioned behind an island. And so to get to Phoenix, you had to either come around the north side of the island or the south side of the island. And if you were at Phoenix looking out to sea, uh, if you weren't just looking at this island right in front of you, but actually looking out to sea, you had to be looking to either one side of the island or the other. So you had to be looking either northwest or southwest. And so that is uh, presumably what the text means when it says that this port faced both northwest and southwest. Okay, uh, verse 13 and following. Okay, here's where the action picks up. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force, called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. All right. Um, Again, the accuracy here is uh, astounding. So... This wind from the south, this would have been extremely helpful for them to sort of move along the coast towards Phoenix. So it makes sense that they would think, okay, this is our chance. Let's make a run for Phoenix. 
So they, they make a run for it, right? And then this, this Northeaster comes in and they get caught in the storm. This too actually fits with a known pattern in, in that area. So um, Hemer, uh, drawing I'm pretty sure from Smith, uh, says as follows. He says, quote, There's a noted tendency of a south wind in these climes to back suddenly to a violent northeaster, the well-known Gregale. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, this would have swept down upon them from the open plain of Masara just when they were in the open bay beyond the shelter of Matala, end quote. Okay, so south wind suddenly turns into this storm northeaster wind. This is just something that, that's known to happen at this place at this time of year. Um, so this detail makes perfect sense. So Phoenix was north of Fair Havens, right? And that's why the south wind... It's, in, it's, it's the coast runs east to west. Oh, uh, okay. But it's like, like it goes slightly up, so... Yeah, yeah. so south wind is going to be south. advantageous for going either east or west, and then a little bit north. Yeah. But then a nor'easter... Is, it, is Phoenix east of... West. Fair, it's, so west it's, it's west and slightly north. Okay. Yeah. So the northeast, nor'easter would come in and push them off the coast. Yeah, push them away from the coast. Oh, yeah, okay, because the south wind's going to push them into the coast so they can use that to go forward and stay close to the coast. Okay, carrying on from verse 16. As we passed the lee of a small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be dragged along. All right, so um, there are a couple of geographical references in that passage we just read, and they're both accurate. So that little island of Cauda, that is, uh, it makes sense that that's where they would be right then, uh, given where we know that island is. And also the, sand, uh, the sandbars of Sirtis, which Hemer describes as, quote, a zone of shallows and quicksands. Um, those, uh, given where those are, it makes sense that they were worried about the storm driving them into that. Um, and then, going on from there, from, from verse 18, we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they, uh, they threw their ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being lost. And here, Hemer makes a really interesting point that it this fact about them losing hope at this point might also have a geographical explanation. That's because he suggests that um, they might have been thinking after they've been, you know, uh, pushed around by the storm for a number of days, they might have feared that at this point they've missed Sicily. And so the storm is pushing them out to sea well past their intended destination. And that might be why it's at this moment that they start to lose hope. I thought that was an interesting suggestion. Let's now jump to verse 27. This begins the account of the shipwreck. Um, this, this part is just so cool. Uh, so i start with a general comment that Smith makes about the account of the shipwreck. He says, quote, If we attend minutely to the narrative, it will be seen that the number of conditions required to be fulfilled in order to make any locality agree with it are so numerous as to render it morally impossible to suppose that the agreement which we find here can be the effect of chance. So we know, according to the text, where they end up getting shipwrecked. We, we don't find out until chapter 28, 
But t- according to the text, this location where the shipwreck takes place is on Malta. And what, he, what Smith is saying here is like, look, when you pay close attention to the details of text and compare it to what we actually know about Malta, there is just no way that somebody just accidentally got those details. Okay, so verse 27, um, where we read, On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. Okay, that's a little bit weird. The sailors sensed that they were approaching land. I mean, it doesn't sound like they saw the, the land. It sounds like somehow, you know, without seeing it, they figured out that there was land nearby. Well, what's going on with that? Well, as it turns out, uh, local geography shed some light on this. So it turns out on the approach to Malta, uh, apparently from the direction that they would have been coming from, there's this little point called the Point of Kura. And during the storm, there would have been these big waves crashing against it. And so it probably would have drawn their attention. And that would have been a signal to them that, oh, okay, we're not just out in the middle of the ocean anymore. We're near, you know, some land, maybe. Going on from there, uh, verse 28 and following, they took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. Okay, now one of our authors uh, indicates that, or suggests that what, what may have inspired them to drop anchor at this point is that it may have, that may have been the moment at which the island of Malta actually came into view so they could actually see the land that they were approaching. And that helps with a point about the soundings here. So they take these soundings, they take one and they get 120 feet deep. And it says a short time later, they take another one and found it was 90 feet deep. So the depth of the first sounding is about the right depth for being near the point of Kura. And the depth of the second sounding is about the right depth for when the island of Malta first comes into view. It makes you wonder how Luke remembers all this. I mean, was he keeping a diary? It could be. In the middle of the... This huge storm. Yeah, I think, I don't remember which author it was, but I think I've read at least one author suggests that this part may have been based on like a ship's log uh-huh. or something like that. Oh, I forgot to mention this. So about the dropping anchors in verse 29, um, it, as it happens, the floor of the of St. Paul's Bay, which is the traditional site of this shipwreck, is particularly suitable for anchors to catch hold. Um, and it's a little bit unusual that they throw the anchors off the stern instead of the bow of the ship, but Smith explains that that actually makes sense in this circumstance because it would have helped them prepare to run the ship aground, which is what they do the next morning. Uh, Jump down to verse 39. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea, and at the same time, united or untied the ropes that held the rudders when they hoisted the foresail, or then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. Okay, so so the uh, the boat actually the front of the boat actually gets stuck in the bottom of the bay. And the waves behind it come from coming from behind it, smash it to pieces is what's going on here. Um, okay, so a uh, couple of things to note here. The ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. So isn't this this word here is not actually sandbar. 
Um, the word that's used in Greek, though, it's a phrase actually, is really strange. And it means a place of two seeds. And if you go to Malta and you look around, there is a place that, that has been suggested that might be, you know, maybe this is what they're talking about. So there's this little island called Salmonetta next to Malta. And as you approach Malta, it, it looks like it's just part of the island of Malta. But once you get close enough, it turns out that it's not quite part of the island. It's a separate little island. And the place between Malta and Salmonetta, um, it's been suggested, might be described as like a place where two seas meet. Because um, you have, you know, the sea on one side and this of Salmonetta and the sea on the other side. And they're coming together to cut off Salmonetta from Malta, making it its own island. And so um, it could be, and that's what my sources suggest, um, that that's where, uh, like when that came into view or near there, where the ship kind of struck bottom and ran aground. Okay, so that's kind of a neat, though in some ways puzzling, geographical reference. And then this whole thing about the ship getting stuck in the mud and broken up from behind. So um, Smith says that this is, quote, a remarkable circumstance, which, but for the peculiar nature of the bottom of St. Paul's Bay, it would be difficult to account for. Okay, so this is unusual, but it's unusual in a way that matches the unusual features of the traditional site of the shipwreck, St. Paul's Bay on Malta. And here's why. He explains as follows. Quote, the rocks of Malta disintegrate into extremely minute particles of sand and clay, which, when acted upon by the currents or surface agitation, form a deposit of tenacious clay. But in still water, where these causes do not act, mud is formed. But it's only in the creeks, where there are no currents, and at such a depth as to be undisturbed by the waves, that the mud occurs. In Captain Smith's chart of the bay, one of the sources that he used when he was writing this book, uh, the nearest soundings to the mud indicate a depth of about three fathoms, which is about what a large ship could draw. A ship, therefore, impelled by the force of a gale, into a creek with a bottom such as that laid down in the chart would strike a bottom of mud, graduating into tenacious clay, into which the forepart would fix itself and be held fast whilst the stern was exposed to the force of the waves, end quote. So, uh, geology to the rescue, I guess. Um, <laughs> so it's like this weird thing about like, what, the front of the ship got stuck somehow? And then you go to St. Paul's Bay and study, like, the mud and stuff on the bottom of the bay. It's like, oh, yeah, there's an explanation of exactly why that would have happened. Okay. And then one final kind of cool bit of confirmation. And this is the one to rule them all. Uh, so remember back at verse 27 that we're told that it was on, the, like, midnight of the 14th day out from Cauda when the storm grabbed them that they sense that they're approaching land. And then we learn in chapter 28 that this land that they're approaching is uh, the island of Malta. Okay, so night on the, four, the 14th night out from when this storm grabbed a hold of them. So Smith, in his book, goes in, uh, he, he gathers all this information, right? He takes a look at the text and the clues that it gives us and what it tells us about the voyage. And he collects information about the local conditions and about ancient sailing and so on, and he makes some estimates. He estimates, okay, what direction w was the storm taking them when they set out from Cauda? And what speed would they have been going at on average? And he calculates uh, an estimate of where the ship would have been on midnight of the 14th night out. 
from departing cauda. And here's what he found. He says, quote, according to these calculations, a ship starting late in the evening from Claudio would, by midnight on the 14th, be less than three miles from the entrance of St. Paul's Bay, the traditional site of the shipwreck. That's super cool. <laughs> like, that is awesome. Um, and then he adds this. He says, quote, I admit that a coincidence so very close as this is to a certain extent accidental but it is an accident which could not have happened had there been any inaccuracy on the part of the author of the narrative with regard to the numerous incidents upon which the calculations are founded, or had the ship been wrecked anywhere but at Malta, for there is no other place agreeing either in name or descriptions within the limits to which we are tied down by calculations founded upon the narrative. That uh, that will wrap up our discussion of the book of Acts. Um, we've spent three episodes now working through it and considering some of the places at which um, it is confirmed by historical evidence. And as we've mentioned repeatedly, there's even more evidence and much more of it than we've been able to cover, though I tr- we tried to highlight some of the, the coolest stuff. Um, but I think that the case... Uh, for the historicity of Acts on the whole, is extremely strong. And we've talked about how that counts in favor not only of what happens in Acts, but also what happens in the Gospels, and perhaps especially uh, in favor of the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. All right, thank you once more for joining us on the Mercy House University podcast. Once again, if you have any questions remaining about this course's topic, we're going to have one more episode that's going to air in a couple of weeks, and you can email us at mercyhouseu at gmail.com. It's mercyhouse, the letter U, at gmail.com. And our next course is going to be about the topic of prayer. So if you have any questions that you've been thinking about, about prayer, uh, how it works, why we're commanded to do it, or anything like that that you would like us to address during that course, please feel free to email or talk to one of us and let us know what uh, you want us to address. And we'll see you next time.